You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about Lyme disease, a tick-borne illness with a broad range of symptoms over time and regional variation. Helping us sort out fact from fiction is Dr. Michael Russo, an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Disease at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Russo. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of my favorite topics to discuss as it meshes with my childhood love of bugs and my adult love of, well, bugs of a different sort. (laughs) I love that. We love some good ID humor. So let's talk about Lyme disease, which has a fascinating history that's worth us discussing because it helps explain the clinical manifestations and epidemiology. So Lyme began in Connecticut in 1975 when a cluster of children and adults residing in and around a town called Lyme, Connecticut, experienced uncommon arthritic symptoms. Within two years, it was identified that the Ixodes scapularis tick was linked to the transmission of the disease and later other ticks were also implicated. Serology testing became available in 1984, and it became a reportable disease in 1987. By 1988, news of Lyme spread nationally, and this is when it first came to my attention as a seven-year-old in New Jersey. So where else in the U.S. is Lyme endemic, and when is its peak transmission? So it's endemic from New England down into the mid-Atlantic, so Maine through to Virginia, and then a couple parts of the upper Midwest Great Lakes region, specifically Minnesota and Wisconsin, although it is expanding into parts that border these regions. Peak transmission is May to September. It's so interesting, having grown up in this area where there is Lyme, to think about areas that don't have it is something that's on my radar all the time. But as people travel, it's really important that they keep this in mind. Now, the emergence of Lyme disease in Connecticut is an important part of this story because now nearly 47 years later, we're talking more about the impact of climate change and environment on health. And the Lyme story highlights how changes in land use and a shift from farming to suburban residential communities change the habitats that support wildlife, including ticks, and therefore increase the transmission of tick-borne disease in humans. So I'm wondering how common is Lyme disease? And over the years, have we seen rates of Lyme change much? So over the past decade, there are roughly 30 to 40,000 reported or confirmed cases per year in the United States. The incidence of Lyme disease increased in the 1990s and early 2000s. Some of this was due to increased detection and reporting, including some changing case definitions. And some was due to increasing human encroachment on tick habitats, as well as killing off predators such as red foxes of the white-footed mouse, which is actually the major reservoir in the eastern U.S. of Lyme disease. Deer actually get unfairly maligned in this whole disease. (laughs) They really do. I have never heard about the white-footed mouse, so I'm glad to know that that's the culprit. Well, with that historical context and a little bit of framing in mind and a better understanding of the impact of the environment on health, let's get into talking about how the disease manifests in children. 
So the symptoms vary depending on the stage of illness, and there's three stages, early localized disease, early disseminated disease, and late disease. And let's talk about each of these stages separately and start with early localized disease. The hallmark of this stage is the erythema migrans rash, which we know as a bullseye rash usually within 7 to 14 days after a tick bite. It most commonly appears on the head, neck, back, and extremities, although it can appear anywhere. Untreated, the rash continues to expand over days to weeks. So while that's the most typical erythema migrans course, it can also have variable timing and appearance, making it hard sometimes to distinguish from similar rashes like numular eczema, erythema multiforme, tinea corporis, or local reactions to insect bites. So without a known tick bite, how can we distinguish EM from these other really common rashes? So one thing to point out is that the bullseye that many of us have in our mind is not actually the defining feature of erythema migrans. The last part of the term, migrans, is really the key point. So expansion is the key defining feature. So the rash will expand to greater than 5 to 30 centimeters over several days to weeks. And that central clearing is only going to occur in about a third. So oftentimes when there's a question about, you know, whether this is eczema or tinea or local reaction to some arthropod bite, it's a can be re-examined over the course of several days, and there should be that gradual expansion that's seen. One thing to point out is that rashes that form within two days of a, a known tick bite are most likely a hypersensitivity reaction. When you think about erythema multiforme, that can be a little bit more difficult to distinguish between multiple erythema migrans lesions. Of note, um, there will be no mucous membrane or palm and sole involvement in multiple erythema migrants. Also, about half of patients may have local symptoms during this period, and the majority will have some about of headache, fatigue, fever, or arthralgias. I love thinking about that migrants piece that you mentioned and how it's getting larger. And as you mentioned, also just thinking about the broader context of other symptoms that might be associated with Lyme that you wouldn't see or expect with things like eczema or tinea. So thanks for that distinction. Let's move on a little bit to talking about early disseminated Lyme disease, which occurs within weeks to months after the tick bite. This happens when the early localized stage went untreated and the spirochete enters the bloodstream and disseminates to tissues throughout the body, including the CNS. At this stage, symptoms include multiple EM lesions, cranial nerve palsies, meningitis, and carditis. The presentation that I've seen most commonly in this stage is the facial nerve palsy. In one study in a Lyme endemic area, 34% of children presenting to the ED with a facial nerve palsy had Lyme disease. Obviously, a facial palsy can raise alarm for other pathologic processes like stroke, meningitis, or brain tumors. So what are some of the hallmark features of a Lyme-related cranial nerve palsy? So cranial neuropathies are the most common early disseminated manifestation of Lyme disease. Most of them involve cranial nerve 7 or rarely other cranial nerves. Clinically, it is very difficult to distinguish from an idiopathic slash Bell's palsy. Studies from our colleagues here at CHOP as well as earlier work in Boston suggest a higher rate of preceding systemic illness, such as a fever, headache, myalgias, and those with Lyme than those with an idiopathic slash Bell's palsy. Both of these are peripheral cranial nerve 7 palsies and thus affect the lower motor neurons that control both the upper and lower parts of the face. Isolated lower face weakness would indicate an injury to the contralateral upper motor neurons from a central injury. So that would be something that would be seen in some of the conditions that you were mentioning. 
in addition to being less common, a stroke or brain tumor would likely also have other signs or symptoms, such as other focal neurologic findings, for instance, from the vascular territory of a stroke. And when I've seen Lyme cranial nerve palsies, one of the things that made it different than other Bell's palsies, I would say, is that it can spread to the opposite side of the face. Is that right? Correct. Bilateral cranial nerve 7 palsies are almost pathognomonic for Lyme disease in a endemic area. It's fairly rare, but if you do see it, it does make a strong case for Lyme disease. Great point for us to keep in mind. And then lastly, we have late disease, which most commonly presents with arthritis. Walk us through how Lyme arthritis presents and how to distinguish it from other causes of arthritis. So Lyme arthritis is actually the second most common manifestation of Lyme disease in children after erythema migrans. So all of the early disseminated Lyme disease forms are actually not that common. As far as the arthritis itself, the mean time to presentation is roughly three months after a tick bite, and it's most common during periods of high transmission. Mm -hmm. But however, it does occur year-round, and so we do see it into the winter. Clinically, it's very similar to juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and swelling and stiffness far outweigh the amount of pain that most children are in. It's almost always a large joint monoarticular arthritis. The knee is most common hips and ankles, the next most common joints. Trying to differentiate it between a septic arthritis, there's not going to be that micromotion or short arc pain. Interestingly though, uh, if you look at synovial fluid counts, the cell counts do not differentiate between the two conditions. Untreated, Lyme arthritis will actually usually self-resolve over weeks to months and will have a relapsing nature and present with future attacks. The whole goal of treatment is to try and decrease the duration of the current episode as well as to eradicate the bacteria so they don't have those future attacks. Really interesting. So you've given us a lot of good pearls about how to recognize Lyme clinically. If we have a classic presentation of a tick bite followed by EM, we can empirically treat. But given all of the nuances that we just discussed and how children can present, help walk us through what testing options are available and recommended. So one thing to keep in mind before discussing testing is that the background seropositivity for Lyme disease testing is about 5 to 10% in endemic areas. Mm. And so testing is only indicated if the clinical syndrome is already consistent with the manifestation of Lyme disease. All Lyme disease testing currently is a two-step process. So the one that we're all probably most familiar with is doing one, an initial enzyme immunoassay or ELISA or EIA, after which point, if that is positive above a certain cutoff, it reflexes to a Western blot. And you'd be looking at the IgM response if you're trying to diagnose an early disseminated form of Lyme disease, or the IgG response if you're trying to diagnose Lyme arthritis. Now, Western blots have a, a number of issues, including that they're work-intensive and they have some subjectivity. The most recent development in the testing of Lyme disease is what's called a modified two-tier method. And so this just uses two separate enzyme immunoassays with two different sets of antigens. So many labs, including CHOP, have switched to this as it's easier to perform faster and avoids that subjectivity of Western blots. Clinically, the main difference is some slightly improved sensitivity in early localized disease, 
but this wouldn't affect much in an endemic region like ours where the diagnosis can be made clinically. Two common pitfalls that I see in testing for Lyme disease is sending an isolated Western blot, which is clinically uninterpretable if a prior enzyme immunoassay was not positive, or some confusion that antibodies, including the IgM response, interestingly enough, can be detectable for decades. Mm. PCR is of relatively limited utility, aside from potentially speeding up the diagnosis of Lyme arthritis when run on synovial fluid. The published literature on that gives varying sensitivities depending on the primer sets that are used. At least the one that we use here at CHOP is roughly, will detect about 50% of cases, and we rely upon the immunoassay to confirm the diagnosis. So as you mentioned, we should only be testing kids when there is this clinical suspicion. But one of the challenges of making the diagnosis of early localized or disseminated disease is that there may be associated systemic symptoms like fever, fatigue, headache, arthralgia, or myalgia, which clinically can look similar to many other common pediatric illnesses, including viruses like EBV. Can you talk about whether or not we should send Lyme testing in these more nonspecific cases where Lyme may be on our differential? There may be sometimes some confusion about what Lyme disease can or can't cause. A lot of those symptoms in the absence of other manifestations of Lyme disease would not be indications to test for it. There are actually relatively few major indications for testing for Lyme disease in an endemic area. In general, those are gonna be new onset heart block, new onset cranial nerve palsy, a lymphocytic meningitis, and a monoarticular large joint arthritis. Testing can also be indicated in the setting of an uncertain rash in which you're not certain if it's erythema migrans, and you're going to test now and then test again later because only about half of individuals are going to be seropositive at presentation for that. Mm. Great distinctions. Now, I don't know if this comes up in your ID clinic as much as it does in primary care, but families love to save the tick that they pulled off of their child and show it to us and ask if we can test it. Is there any utility in testing that tick? So, One, I will always take a look at the tick because I wanted to be an entomologist as a young child. But (laughs) interestingly enough, there's not much utility in testing a tick. It doesn't change management. Mm -hmm. So one thing to think about is that tick testing is not actually regulated by the normal clinical laboratory testing is these aren't human specimens. So we don't actually know how reliable some of those results are. Similarly, just because a tick might carry a certain pathogen, they're actually relatively inefficient at transmitting most of them. Mm -hmm. Additionally, just because a tick quote-unquote tested negative and somebody had a clear illness that was consistent with a tick-borne infection, we wouldn't disregard that just because of some testing that was done on the tick. So overall, you can save yourself the time, the money, as well as some of the uh, scary-sounding results that can come back from those tests. And for those of us who didn't want to be entomologists, we can keep those ticks out of our office. (laughs) So so we could continue talking about the testing algorithm all day, but I want to save time for treatment. We're going to skip discussing late disease, though, because at that point, primary care would either have referred to the emergency department or consulted with ID. So let's start in early localized disease where you can treat with doxycycline, amoxicillin, or cefuroxime with a 10-day course of doxy and 14 days for the other two. What's the response to this treatment, though? When will the EM rash resolve? And do some kids still go on to develop disseminated disease? If fever is present, it should resolve in about two days. And the median duration of the rash on treatment is about five to six days. So 
The treatment is extremely effective. Development of other manifestations is extremely rare in most large case series from zero to less than 1%. Neurologic manifestations, interestingly enough, are the one sole thing that has occasionally popped up after treatment. And there is some thought that some of them may be immune mediated as much as direct infection. Mm. So in early disseminated disease, where there may be more cutaneous manifestations with either neurologic or cardiac involvement, how does treatment differ from what I just described in the localized disease? So for the neurologic manifestations, this is something that's been evolving over the past decade. For cranial nerve palsies, it's not clear if amoxicillin works, and this doxycycline is preferred. Hmm. Most cases of Lyme meningitis we now know can be treated with doxycycline, but ceftriaxone can be used if they are unable to tolerate doxycycline. Of note, there's no difference in development of neurologic disease if early Lyme disease is treated with amoxicillin or doxycycline. Mm. For cardiac disease, which is relatively quite rare, for children who are admitted to the hospital and may not be tolerated or permitted to PO in the early stages of severe heart block, ceftriaxone is often used, but they can then be transitioned to doxycycline or amoxicillin. For all the manifestations that we just discussed, treatment duration for all of them is about 14 to 21 days. A frequent comment we get is, how do you choose between 14 and 21 days? <laughs> and there really isn't a great literature base to decide between 14 versus 21. Mm -hmm. And so what we would generally recommend is that if somebody is getting better and seems to have gotten better early, choose one of the shorter durations, which the vast majority of individuals were. Mm -hmm. One thing that's important to note specifically for the cranial nerve palsy is that the treatment with antibiotics does not actually affect the time course of the cranial nerve palsy. Mm. The treatment is mainly to eradicate the bacteria to prevent some of the later manifestations, specifically arthritis. That's interesting. So it sounds like the antibiotic duration is a little bit of an individualized treatment plan. So in talking about Lyme, it's important that we talk about prevention. Strategies that have shown success include tick checks after outdoor activities, bathing, placing dry clothes in dryers on high heat settings, wearing protective clothing, using tick repellents with DEET or permethrin on clothing, and avoidance of high-risk areas like wooded areas and tall grasses. But tick bites still happen. So when removing a tick from a child, when should we consider prophylaxis and what medication are we using? Sure. So one thing to specifically consider is that we're just talking about Lyme disease in this question. Sure. At this point, there is no indication for post-exposure prophylaxis for any other ticks or tick-borne illnesses. So post-exposure prophylaxis for Lyme disease can work, but the number needed to treat is relatively high. The criteria to consider post-exposure prophylaxis are if the bite occurs in an endemic area, so again, those regions that we mentioned in the first part of the podcast. Two, it can be identified as an Ixodes scapularis or deer tick, and the CDC has some great pictures to help look at this. Three, whether it's engorged, because it does take about 36 hours at minimum for Lyme disease to be transmitted from a deer tick. And you can compare looking at the pictures on the CDC's website whether this tick appears to have been engorged. And if medication can be administered within 72 hours of the tick being removed. In cases that fulfill these criteria, doxycycline specifically can reduce the risk of developing erythema migrans given as a single dose. But the absolute risk in most real-world scenarios is quite low. 
For instance, the main study in the U.S. of 482 subjects at for high-risk bites, as above, showed that 0.4% in the doxycycline group versus 3% of those in the placebo group developed erythema migraines. None developed later stages, and no one had an asymptomatic seroconversion. So the number needed to treat in this study was 36, but the number needed to harm to cause nausea and vomiting was 5. So the other way to think about this when discussing with patients or their families is that 97% of those who weren't giving post-exposure prophylaxis and the 3% who didn't developed a recognizable rash at the site, which can be easily treated. Mm. As of now, this is the only studied antibiotic that has worked. Studies have looked at longer courses of penicillin and amoxicillin that did not show an effect, although it's possible that those studies were not large enough. As we mentioned, the effect size is relatively small. Well, thank you for clearing up so many things about Lyme disease. I promised at the beginning that you would help us sort fact from fiction, and I think you did just that. We appreciate this advice and the support that you give us when our patients do have more complicated cases or develop long-term complications. And we appreciate you and all of the Division of Infectious Disease at CHOP for all of the care that you give our patients, especially during this pandemic. Well, thank you so much, and it was a privilege to come on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 